Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me again for today's version of Grace to All with Paul Gray. If you were with us last time, you heard me talk about the fact that the New Covenant, what we call the New Testament, it's not a rule book. It's not a handbook. It's actually a love letter to us. It's a love letter from the lover of all lovers, from Papa Love, from the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a love letter to us. It's not rules and regulations and a user's guide or a handbook or anything like that. It's not commandments. There's only one commandment in the new covenant, and that's the commandment of love. Now, having that in mind, looking at what we read in the Bible through a love letters lens, through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of God being perfect, unconditional, never-ending love, let's look at this passage in Ephesians 4, verses 14 to 25. This is from the Passion Translation. It, Paul starts out by saying, We will not be easily shaken by trouble, nor led astray by novel teachings, or by the false doctrines of deceivers who teach clever lies. All right, let's look at some things in there. False doctrines. When we look at Scripture, teaching, anything we hear from the eyes of Jesus, perfect, unconditional, never-ending love for everyone, Jesus' finished work at the cross accomplished for everyone, then we see a false doctrine is anything that contradicts God's pure, perfect, unconditional, never-ending love for all people. It's anything that contradicts Jesus' finished work at the cross being successful for all people. Those are false doctrines. See, religion has done a number on us and called what's true false and what's false true. And if you repeat something that's false over and over again enough, pretty soon people will start to think it's true. False doctrines are anything that brings, conjures up in your mind shame or condemnation or fear, because we know those don't come from pure, perfect love. There's no condemnation in Jesus Christ for anyone. There's no shame. There's no fear. Pure, perfect love casts out fear. So a false doctrine is any doctrine that brings fear, shame, condemnation. Paul says in verse 14, we will not be shaken or led astray. Now, that's not a threat. That's not a command. That's not something you got to do to get right with God. It's a statement of who we are, who we really are, who we really be when we believe the truth about love and grace. 
white, led astray by novel teachings. We know the word novel, especially with the novel COVID-19 coronavirus. Novel means new. All right. What is a new teaching? A new teaching that's not correct, that's false, is anything that contradicts what Jesus says, does, how he lives, how he acts after the finished work at the cross. So a false doctrine, a novel teaching would be, for example, teaching about hell, which is never mentioned after the cross in the new covenant teaching. It's mistranslated. It's inserted, as we talked about last week, but it's never there in the original. All right. Verse 15. Instead, Paul says, when we know and personally experience and enjoy and have an intimate relationship with perfect, pure, never-ending, unconditional love, then we will remain strong and always sincere in our love. It's all about love. We will remain strong and always be sincere in our love as we express the truth. Some other translations say, speaking in the truth of love. All right, speaking the truth of love or speaking the truth in love. The actual Greek is, and the Aramaic is, there are only three words, speak, truth, love. Now, of course, translators many times use some words that are not in the text to help us get the meaning. They have their prerogative to do that, and many times they do that and come up with a false meaning. I don't think many translators do that intentionally, but at one point in time, certainly some did. All right. Speak truth love. He goes on to say in verse 15, all our direction and ministries will flow from Christ and lead us deeper into Christ, the anointed head of his body, the church. The Messiah means the anointed one. Christ means the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one, the one anointed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for his body, the church, has been formed in his image. We were all made in the image of Christ, who is the exact image of God. How's that for having value and worth? All right. His body, the church, has been formed in his image and is closely joined together and constantly connected as one. And every member has been given divine gifts to contribute to the growth of all. And as these gifts operate effectively throughout the whole body, here's the result. We are built up and made perfect in love. Man, can you see love from the beginning to the end? When you start to see Scripture through the lens of Jesus, words like all and perfect love are going to jump out at you where you never paid any attention to it before. You just kind of glossed over and they were just like almost like, you know, commas or dashes or whatever, not with any meaning. No, you're, you're going to see things you never saw before. And Jesus, the teacher, the Holy Spirit in you will Bring those to the forefront of your mind. They'll like jump off the page, and he will show you how they trump any previously false interpretation that you may have been taught. And, you know, we just, in, in religion, we hear things over and over again by well-meaning people, people with letters after the name and experience and gray hair and all that stuff. And we think, I got gray hair, I'm so. But we think when we hear that from the pulpit, well, those things must be true. But when Jesus starts to reveal the truth to you, he shows you, no, a lot of those things are not true. They're false doctrine. 
verse 17, Paul says, so with the wisdom given to me from the Lord, and of course, Jesus taught Paul personally in the Arabian desert for about 13 years. This was five years after Jesus finished work at the cross. He showed up and taught. Paul was his chosen one, taught him personally. So here he's telling us, he says, with the wisdom given to me from the Lord, I say, you should not live like the unbelievers around you who walk in their empty delusions. Now, these are not bad people. They're not people that uh, that God doesn't love. They're not people that we don't love or we want to love them. But Jesus says, don't live like they do. Again, Jesus gave Paul this revelation himself. Unbelievers, I believe, my understanding is in, in this text and in others, are those who don't yet believe the truth about God's unconditional, perfect, never-ending love and grace and the effects of Jesus' finished work at the cross. I mean, Jesus said to the unbelievers who were killing him, said, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they do. What they, they don't know what they're doing. All right. We will casually say, oh, well, so-and-so, uh, you know, even though they go to a different church, uh, they're a believer. Well, a believer in what? A believer in what kind of God? Verse 18, Paul says, these unbelievers, says their corrupted logic has been clouded because their hearts are so far from God. Their blinded understanding and deep-seated moral darkness, we're going to see how that means different than what we thought, keeps them from the true knowledge of God. Corrupted logic causes cognitive dissonance. See, you know, logic will show what's true, but if it's corrupted, it's obviously it's not true, and that will cause cognitive dissonance in us. Here's an example of that. Believing that God is love, but he's also a wrath and anger. Believing that God is love, but he's also squeaky, clean, morally perfect. And since we're not, and since we've broken his moral rules, somebody has to pay. And of course, rather than punish us, he poured out all of his wrath and anger on poor, innocent Jesus. Uh, except he still has plenty of wrath to pour out on us if we mess up and forever with eternal conscious torment for about 90% of his creation. See, that's corrupted logic. When I first started in the ministry, I was in my 40s, early 40s, I was on a staff at a denominational church, and Jesus was really starting to reveal things to me. One day in a staff meeting, I asked the pastor, who was my mentor at the time, I'd been reading things, and I said, Pastor, what does it mean that Jesus is the Savior of all? What does it mean that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Well, he answered, these might not have been in his exact words, but this was the gist of it. He says, well, it means he's the Savior of all who repent, of all who confess their sins, of all who ask Jesus to come into their hearts because they're separated from him. He's the Savior of all who never commit the unforgivable sin. He's the Savior of all who confess their sins every day and don't die with any unconfessed sins. Because if a person dies with unconfessed sins, he's not their Savior. He said, what is the unforgivable sin? He said, well, we don't know. <laughs> Those answers caused tremendous cognitive dissonance in my thinking. Now, at the time, I didn't feel like I had the right standing enough to even question them. 
But boy, they were mulling through my mind. See, that is corrupted logic. Not yet believers. This scripture says their hearts are far from the only true God because they don't yet believe in the only true God. They're blinded. John writes in the first chapter of John, when Jesus came, the darkness couldn't understand him, couldn't figure out what he was saying, and didn't even want to. In fact, they tried to overcome him. See, when your mind is darkened, when you think, when you have a concept that either that there is no God or that God is as the people in Jesus' day did, he came to his own, the Jews, they had the mindset that God was separate, that they were all unworthy, that God couldn't stand to be around them, that God had to punish them and they had to keep all these laws, and if they didn't, God was really going to get them. See, they had that mindset, and their hearts were so dark, they didn't even want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear anything different because they'd convinced that that would be blasphemy. And that's what they accused Jesus of. Deep-seated moral darkness, as Paul is talking about here, can be thinking, well, we're God's chosen because we did these things, and those people are not his chosen, and they're bad, and they should be punished. Deep-seated moral darkness, I believe, is thinking God loves us, but hates and will punish those other people. Now, it might seem to some of you that I'm beating a dead horse here, but Jesus is continually showing to me how important it is to know these things because, for one thing, we won't be able to grasp what he wants to reveal to us through Scripture if we still read it with a religious mindset. Verse 19, because of spiritual apathy, Jesus said these unbelievers surrender their lives to lewdness, impurity, and sexual obsession. God has really been showing me some things here. Spiritual apathy is just not being interested in hearing and knowing about the real God who loves everyone and who Jesus is the Savior of all. An example of spiritual apathy is when a person has that closed mindset of the Bible says it and I believe it. Of course, this version of the Bible and this is what I believe it says, period. And that person then not being willing to see what the words, the original words, the context, the history, and the culture meant when they were written, and not being willing or caring about the implication of mistranslations or outright additions or deletions of words, that's spiritual apathy. That's thinking, you know it all, and I'm not even going to listen to anything else. Because many times we're taught in religion, don't listen to those guys. And, and don't, you know, whatever you do, don't believe what they believe. All right. Lewdness is in part having a sin consciousness and saying and doing things that are not loved based. We don't even want to do that when we see other people as Jesus sees them, when we love other people as Jesus loves them. doesn't mean we won't mess up sometimes, but it's less and less and we don't even want to do it. Impurity just the very meaning of the word means that something is mixed with a foreign matter. It's no longer pure. Impure thoughts would be thinking that pure, perfect, unconditional love could stop loving you, could be conditional, could punish you because you thought or did something bad. That's taking something pure, like God's love, and mixing it with other things, mixing it with law, mixing it with rules, mixing it with an impression of a false God, 
makes it impure. Sexual obsession, obviously there are different ways that that can play out in our lives. But one thing I want to talk about today that many times we don't see is being obsessed with rules about sex. It's having a sin consciousness about sex. When I grew up, went to church camp, they were so obsessed with that, with sexual obsession, that they said boys and girls can't swim together because it might lead to who knows what. They said women can't wear makeup because it will cause men to not be able to control their passions. And women doing that might lead men astray. Sexual obsession is believing you shouldn't have sex because it might lead to dancing. Oh, no, wait a minute. They said no dancing there. I wonder, which way did they say it? I'm being facetious. Sexual obsession is really being obsessed that God will punish you for sexual thoughts and deeds. It's like a, a golfer. The lake is between where his ball is and the grass and the green. And the golfer focuses on the lake and says, I'm not going to hit the ball on the lake. I'm not going to hit the ball on the lake. I'm not going to hit the ball on the lake. Sure enough, he hits the ball in the lake because that's what he's focusing on. And then he beats himself up over it and condemns himself. No, real good golfers ignore the lake and they focus. They have focused intention. They fix their minds on the ball landing on the green. All right. You all know that some famous pastors and evangelists, as well as many who aren't well-known, people who constantly rail against sexual sin, many times they lead a secret life and then get exposed for doing the very thing they rail against, for having affairs, for sexual abuse, for prostitution, for being gay. The very things that they publicly rail against and say, God is going to get you for that. Spiritual laws cause you to have sin consciousness. That's why we have to read the Bible through the lens of the finished work of Jesus at the cross, doing away with the law, making it obsolete, taking it away, overcoming it, everything. And so that we know that the only law in play is the law of love. When you know and experience and relate to and enjoy perfect, never-ending, unconditional love, you have love's view of sex and everything else. Being obsessed with thinking God hates certain people, can't stand to be around people, is repulsed with people by people who have broken his rules, that's sexual obsession. Being obsessed that their version of God hates and can't love and will punish forever people who are gay, who have a gay lifestyle, man, that is sexual obsession. I mean, think about how that sexual obsession from religion has kept so many people from seeing the only true God and has literally caused people to be shunned, abused, and sometimes killed. Verse 20, but this is not the way of life that Christ has unfolded within you. The way of life that Christ has unfolded with us is the way of life of the Father with the prodigal son. The way of life with Jesus is not condemning the woman caught in adultery. The way of life of Jesus is loving the rich young ruler who walked away from him. The way of life is Jesus is choosing a woman who'd been married five times and was shacking up at the time to include in his inner circle with Peter, James, and John and partner with her in reaching whole cities and whole regions for the only true God. 
The way of life of Jesus is not speaking to or fighting back with when he was being tortured and instead continually saying, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing, which, of course, is why he came to seek and save that which was lost, our lost mindset of who we are and who God is. The way of life is Jesus is taking away, lifting up, removing our sin, the sin of the world. Verse 21, Paul says, since you have really experienced the anointed one and heard his truth, it will be seen in your life. For we know that the ultimate reality is embedded in Jesus. See, when you intimately know Christ, he will be seen in your life. People will see him acting as you. People will see perfect, unconditional, never-ending love and grace in you and as you. Verse 22, and he has taught you to let go of the lifestyle of the ancient man. Well, who would that be? Uh, That would be Adam. Let go of Adam's false belief about God, the old self-life, which was corrupted by sinful and deceitful desires that spring from delusions. It's all in your mind. Let go of that old lifestyle, thinking that God blesses you and punishes others, thinking that God's going to get you because you did something wrong. You broke a rule. Verse 23. Now it's time to be made new by every revelation personal revelation from the living word of God. Now it's time to be made new by every revelation that's been given to you from God. The mirror says it this way, be renewed in your innermost mind. Ponder the truth about you as it is explained in Christ, displayed in Christ. Begin with the fact of your oneness. This will cause you to be completely reprogrammed in the way you think about yourself. And in parentheses, Francois the Translator of the Mirror Bible says, Paul does not say it's up to you to renew your mind. We can't do that. But we have the mind of Christ, and we can choose to believe what he says and what he reveals personally to us. That's what confessing is. It's saying the same thing as what God says. All right, verse 24, just a couple more. He goes on to say, and to be transformed as you embrace the glorious Christ within you, as your new life, your new life in Christ, and live in union with him. For God has recreated you all over again in his perfect righteousness, and you now belong to him in the realm of true holiness. Unrighteousness is believing the lie that you're not perfect and right with God. You are perfect and right with God. You're not a worm or a wretched sinner or depraved or somebody that God can't stand to look at. Never. Those are man-made doctrines, false doctrines, delusions, starting with Adam in his mind, and then magnified and made into the heinous doctrine of Calvin in the 1600s. John Wesley knew that. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism, and he and his brother Charles wrote several hundred hymns. John Wesley famously said, Calvin's God is worse than the devil. And I believe that's true. The mindset that God would intentionally choose about 10% of the people of the earth to bless and include and to save and forgive and take to heaven and intentionally create 90% of the people with the intention of sending them to hell 
and giving them eternal conscious torment and them neither group having any say about it. It's called double predestination. I believe it's the most heinous doctrine there is. Verse 25. So discard every form of dishonesty and lying so that you will be known as one who always speaks the truth. For we belong to one another. Don't lie about God's nature and character. Speak the truth about God, that God is pure, unconditional, never-ending love for all people. We all belong to each other. That's oneness. Now, I want to just go back real quickly to verse 15 and close with talking about uh, the phrase, speak the truth in love. If what you're speaking to other people or if what you're hearing is not pure, perfect love that drives out all fear of punish and torment, don't do that because it's not true. It's not true that God is punitive, exclusive, wrathful, and keeps a list of wrongs and can't stand to be around you. It's not true that you or anyone is separate, damned to hell, unless you do whatever your one in 40,000 denomination says. It's not true that anyone is a worm, despicable and depraved. None of that is true. None of that is pure love. So don't say that. Only speak the truth, love. All of those things come from a darkened, deceived mindset that creates a small g, God, in human likeness. Calling good evil and evil good is not true. It's a lie. It creates disease, disharmony, and fear. Anything that you hear from reading scripture or from a pastor or teacher or Bible study leader or a friend or somebody at church or whatever, anything that you hear that causes you to fear God, well, it's a lie. Perfect love drives out all fear. And fear has to do with punishment and torment. That's 1 John 4, verse 16, 17, 18. Truth in Scripture is all based on who God is, love, who we are, love, and who all people are, love. Any moral lapse, sin, missing the mark, is simply because we don't yet know the truth. People who don't believe Now get this, people who do not believe in religion's fictitious false god are closer to truth than religious people who still believe in that false god. I'm an atheist to that god. I don't believe in it. Sometimes I'll be talking to people and they say, well, I know you're a pastor and everything, but I I don't believe in that god. That I just don't believe in god that would create people and send them to hell and burn them forever. And I raise some eyebrows right away when I say, I don't believe in that God either. That God doesn't exist. That's a figment of people's imagination. Create the mindset of letting Jesus love, Papa love, and Holy Spirit love reveal to you what Scripture really says. Create the mindset of letting them reveal that to you, and you'll have an amazingly wonderful time reading Scripture. All right. Thanks, everybody. Look forward to seeing you next time on Grace to All with Paul Gray. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All, where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.